Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Andrew Benson. I am the fifth and sixth grade director here at Chena Valley Community Church. And I just wanted to, on behalf of the church, take a moment and acknowledge and thank our fathers on Father's Day. It's a difficult job that requires patience, selflessness, sacrifice, and quite a bit of money. And yet, in, <laughs> I got a lot of laughs, that's funny. And in my life, I have seen so many fathers um, pour into my life and their children's lives um, to, to, to follow the Lord, encouraging them and leading them um, to become uh, better men and women who, who follow the Lord. And so if you're a father, would you, would you please stand up? Um, because on behalf of Chino Valley Community Church, we would like to thank you. And before you sit down, I would just like to pray, um, and again, on behalf of the church, just to bless you guys as you continue forth on the, the one day of the year that you get. So would you please bow your heads with me? God, thank you, uh, first of all, so much for, for modeling what it means to be a father. Um, throughout all of Scripture, you have chosen the to, you've chosen to, to, to show yourself as a father to us as you sacrifice yourself and you love us unconditionally. Um, I thank you for all of, of the fathers here and I pray that you would continue to give them uh, courage and patience um, and the ability to, um, as their families and their children, lean on them and depend on them for safety and for guidance that they would also lean on you and depend on you for safety and for guidance. So thank you for them and for your love. Amen. Thank you, guys. Happy Father's Day. And from the older Benson, I want to wish you a happy Father's Day also. And I just want to settle a dispute early on. According to the socks given to me, I am the number one dad. So I'm not sure how that vote was taken. I'm not sure the legitimacy of that award. However, I have the socks. Therefore, it's settled, at least for today. I am the number one dad. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, we are in the midst of a sermon series through the books of, uh, book of Acts. And, and if you've been with us, you should have recognized by now, after Pentecost, everything was different. After Pentecost, everyone was recognizing the movement of God. There was unity among his people. There was generosity among people. There was confidence. There was power. There was boldness for the gospel. I mean, last week it got to the point where people outside of Jerusalem were bringing in their children, bringing in their families for, uh, to the apostles, to the church for ministry and for healing. I mean, everything was just going smoothly. The power of God was at work. And if, if you don't know the story of Acts, you probably get the opinion that, man, everything's going great. Everybody's going to love it. I mean, who doesn't want the power of God to be running through their lives, through their homes, through their church, through their culture? You might be surprised that everyone wasn't happy with it. 
Everyone wasn't pleased with the movement of God at work through the apostles, through the disciples. And we begin to learn a difficult but true lesson. The more impact the movement of God has on this world, the greater the persecution as well. The more impact the movement of God has on this world, the greater the persecution as well. And listen, this is a truth that Jesus taught. Look what he said. He said this. He said, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they did, they will persecute you. And they do, and they will. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. Jesus was clear. Here's the path. The power of God is going to run rampant through culture, but everyone won't like it. So when persecution comes, how should we respond? When trials, when tribulation, when difficulty, when challenges come as a result of us completing our role as witnesses for God, what do we do? And in truth of the reality that trials and tribulations and challenges will come, how do we prepare? It's questions like those that make me love the passage we're going into next. It's a passage that not only gives us four truths that we can remember to help us prepare ourselves to be faithful to the Lord in the midst of trials, struggles, and challenges. But the fact that it falls on Father's Day is even better. See, I, I really believe that one of the things this church needs, not this, our church, the Church of America, is men and fathers to be willing to stand up for truth, regardless of the consequences. I had a conversation with one of my boys just last night. Make sure he recognized sometimes standing for truth doesn't get praise. Sometimes doing the right thing feels like you're doing the wrong thing. Sometimes there's consequences in life for standing up for the Lord. Man, those of you who are fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, that's a truth we need to model. Those of you who someday long to be fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, is a truth you need to model. But it's not a truth just for father figures. It's truth for mothers, daughters, children, people of all ages and all cultures. How can we prepare ourselves to truly be faithful if and when trials, tribulations, and challenges I'd like to share four truths with you. If you have your Bibles, join me, please, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. If you're new to your Bibles, it's easy. Just flip to the middle and flip to the right. Just turn to the middle, flip to the right. The more pages you turn, the more scholarly you look. Everyone will be impressed with you. If you just use your phone, you just click on the thing and look for Acts. Acts chapter 5. As you're turning there, let me catch you up on the context where we pick up the story. Last week, we, we had two models, two models of purity. 
of following God. First was, was Barnabas, right? Barnabas was a Levite. He likely sold everything he had to give it and invest it in the ministry of God. He was all in, bought in. The only thing he likely had was a burial site. And he sold that and gave it to the church for the movement of God. Then you had Ananias and Sapphira. The troubled example. Who had much, sold a piece of it, and out of hypocrisy and deception, laid it at the feet of Peter, wanting the same accolades and praises, but what they found was immediate judgment of God. But even that movement, God used it. After God just clearly taught and expected purity in his movement, purity in his church, culture responded. I mean, there was trust, there was reverence of God, there was trust and reverence for his people. And we finished last week where people from all over the vicinity were coming in to be ministered to by this church. The movement was growing. But if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 5, verse 17, first word, then you know everything's not going to go as we thought. Everything's not going to go the way that we planned, the way that we liked, because the first word is a big biblical but right there. As everything's moving forward, man, everyone seems to love the movement of God at work. First word, verse 17, but the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy and they laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. Just when the movement of God is catching fire and it's impacting people, the high priest and the Sanhedrin, the ruling party of politics and religion. Man, they're not filled with joy. They're not like, wow, look at the power of God work. Look at all these people come to find faith in God. I mean, there were miracles happening. Generosity. And you would think religious leaders and political leaders seeing culture transform before their very eyes would just, like, this is amazing. But the text says they were filled with jealousy. Religious leaders and men who claim to have lives of faithfulness and righteousness before God were suddenly filled with indignation, envy, and feeling an intense rivalry with this new movement. So they wanted people going to their church. They wanted people hearing their sermons. They wanted people doing things their way. They wanted control. Here's the thing. When God's moving, we're not in control. Man, when God's moving, God is in control. So they do the one thing they can. They separate him from the people. We've got to put a stop to this. They're taking over. This movement of God is changing too much. So they arrest him and put him in jail. Right there. The movement of God is on fire, and right there, the rulers of the world, they just come in and snuff it right out, right? There's another biblical but right there in verse 19. Just when you think, all right, that's it. Political leaders win, verse 19, but 
During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, taking them out. He said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now listen, some people read this and they think, okay, see, Jesus is anti-jail. And he doesn't like his people to suffer. See, don't worry, hard times aren't going to come. I want to make sure you understand. Jesus didn't send an angel here because he's anti-jail. Daniel was in jail for two years. He didn't do anything. Sorry, that was Joseph. Joseph was in jail for two years. He didn't do anything. Daniel was in a lion's den. Paul was in prison multiple times. I just want to make sure you're clear. Don't take this passage and believe that God's anti-jail. He's not. So what's the purpose? What's the deal? How, how come he sent a jail to get him, uh, an angel to get him out of jail? Look at what he said, verse 20. He answers it. The angel comes and says, hey, just so you're clear, here's why I'm letting you out. Go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of life. Jesus got them out of jail so they can do their purpose. Go and speak. That term, speak. Have conversations. Go out there with the people and talk. This doesn't mean preach. It doesn't mean have crazy yellow signs and go to Angel Stadium and yell all sorts of crazy things out of bullhorn. Just go and have conversations. Go and be my witnesses. That's what Jesus said, the Great Commission, right? Look at what he said. After he said, all authority has been given to me, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Be a witness. It's your job. Go and talk to people. Look what he says, the whole message of this life. Man, don't just preach justification. Don't just preach heaven. That's not the Christian testimony. Part of it is forgiveness, but man, that's just the start. Salvation is where God saves us from the depths of our sin, transforms our lives, and uses us for his glory and his purpose. Man, that's salvation. Why'd Jesus break these guys out of jail? So they could go teach and do their job. Verse 21. Upon hearing this, man, he didn't free them. Hey, you're Christians. You, you deserve better than prison. That's not the message. Man, as soon as they got out of jail. Verse 21. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Again, that term teach you describe a conversation, didactic dis, uh, discourse, where there was interaction, questions, and answers. They didn't go put up a stage and give the best speaker a microphone and expect people to transform their lives. They flooded the temple with Christians. They had conversations where people couldn't wrestle with it, ask questions, talk. What's that mean? How come that? You know, just like what Jesus did on that road to Emmaus. 
We have such a skewed view of what our job is. Man, just go out and have conversations. Tell people about Jesus this whole life. What Jesus can save their life from, what Jesus can do with their life now, and what Jesus will promise to give them in their eternal life. I was thinking this week, you know, first thing, as we look towards the reality of some form of challenge, tribulation, persecution, difficulty, when we stand for Christ, and the reality that the greater the movement of God, the greater the persecution. Man, when we're going in and understanding that and looking at that, first thing to remember, remember your purpose. Remember your purpose. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I commanded you. And teaching you things that it took me three years to teach you. Man, if it took Jesus three years, what makes us think we can do it over coffee? Go and make disciples. And relax. You know what? Sometimes it feels like all the world's against you. Jesus says, and lo, I'll be with you. If God's for you, who can stand against you? He says, I'm there. Man, go do your purpose. First thing to remember is preparing ourselves to be faithful to God even in the midst of a kooky culture. Even in the midst of it. Number one, remember your purpose. Second, second thing to remember, remember your obedience. Remember your obedience. Here's another thing. Let's continue. Second part of verse 21. It says, now when the high priest and associates came, I love this. Now when the high priest and associates came, the next day they called the council together, even all the Senate and the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. Big biblical but right there, verse 22. But the officers who came did not find them in prison. And they returned, reported back, saying, um, that's in there, that's in the Greek. Hmm. <laughs> we found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what could be done of this. Verse 25, but someone came and reported to them, hey, the men who you put in prison, they're in the temple teaching, having those interactions. They're talking. They're having didactic discourse, question and answer. Man, they're just talking about Jesus. The captain went along with the officers, proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they're afraid of the people that they might be stoned. Ugh, a couple of things I see in this passage. First, how outmatched the rulers of this word are, world are. Do you see that? They put these guys in jail. They're like, okay, bring us some prisoners. I'm um, sorry, boss, prisoners are gone. What? Doors are locked. Guards are there. We don't know. We don't know where they are. Oh, they're in the other room. Bible study, right there. Text says, they're greatly perplexed. 
Like they're completely outmatched. And please don't miss that in the midst of all this where we think the world's taken over. It's like me playing chess against my kids. I have no shot. They're always two steps ahead. They're just better than me. Man, first thing we see is how outmatched these guys are when it comes to the movement of God. Here's the second thing I see. The Christians, they had the hearts of the people, right? I mean, they were ministering. The movement of God was going. People were responding. I mean, people are responding so much that the temple guards are afraid to do anything because they think the people are going to side with the disciples. You see that? Look at what it says. Verse, uh, verse 26, the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence. Hey, don't rough them up. Don't say anything mean because the people are on their side. The whole people will revolt against us. And I was thinking, man, it would have been easy for Peter just cause a riot right there in the temple, wouldn't it? Don't you think? Don't you think Peter could have just, he could have caused a dust up right there? They hold, they held the heart of the people in their hands. They're being treated unrighteously, unfairly. And everybody knew it. But when the temple guards came, what did Peter do? He just went. Without trouble. Ever wonder why? Ever wonder why Peter and the other disciples didn't just cause a big ruckus? Call for a special election? Make a big change? Yeah, it's something to do with what Jesus taught him. If you have your Bibles, put your thumb in Acts. Let's flip over to Matthew. Matthew chapter 23. I want to remind you some things that Jesus taught, some things in Scripture. Man, there's something about us like when we're treated unfairly. We're children of the king. We're Christians, man. We have a responsibility to stand up. I just want to remind you of some truths of Scripture. Matthew chapter 23. And again, sometimes I have you turn there. Sometimes I just put them on the screen. Sometimes there's rhyme or reason. Sometimes I just like to mix it up. These are verses I, I want you to be able to find in your Bibles because I think they're important. Matthew chapter 23, starting at verse 1. Jesus spoke to the crowds to his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They put themselves there. They claimed that authority. Verse three, therefore all that they tell you and do and observe. Therefore all that they tell you, do and observe. And make, make no mistake, Jesus has been anti-Pharisees, Sadducees, man, they've been, he's been against all these guys. Later on he calls them whitewashed tombs. He questions them. It's like, how do you think you're going to escape hell acting the way you are? Right? He is not saying these are great guys. He's saying, look, they put themselves in authority. They are in a position of authority. So all that they tell you to do and observe, you do it. But don't do according to their deeds. Honor their authority. But don't reflect their life. 
That's what he's saying. For they say things and don't do them. Hey, want to know why these disciples honor their authority? Jesus told them to. Do what they tell you to do. Just don't live like them. Let's keep going. Flip over to the other side of the New Testament, book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. This obviously made an impact on the Apostle Peter's life. Because the early church, when they are in the midst of persecution, under a guy named Nero, people gave him the nickname Bloody Nero. Anytime bloody is your nickname, it just is bad. Right? Look at what Peter tells them. 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. It doesn't say submit yourself for your benefit. Submit yourself for my, or for your movement. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake. Submit yourself. That term submit, it means you have the right to do something different. You have the power to do something different, but you're setting that aside. You need to make a choice. Submission is a willful choice. You have the right and the power to do something different. But don't. Ah, Brian, why? For the Lord's sake. Well, to who? Right there. Man, I love scripture. It just answers all the questions we have. Every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. He keeps going. Servants, be submissive. There it is again. Be submissive to your masters with all respect. Man, they don't treat me right, Brian. This is for the Lord's sake. It's not about you and it's not about them. Submit yourself to your masters with all respect, not only those who are good and gentle, but, huge biblical but, right there, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it this finds favor with God. I mean, you want to know why the apostles didn't cause all sorts of ruckus? Jesus told them not to. Don't do it. Peter adds to it. Don't do it. Ah, oh, why? It's horrible. We hate it here. So God can use it. Just in case you think that's unique to Peter, let's flip over to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Again, written to Christians. Who live in a kooky culture. That's what Paul says, Romans 13. 
Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. Even Romans. Jesus taught it, Peter taught it, Paul taught it. Submit, recognize that you may have the power to not do it, but you have the responsibility of God to do it. We are to submit to the authorities of this world, but also obey God. And I got to tell you, that can be a challenge. That's a difficult line. Let me show you how the apostles did it. They were being treated unfairly. They had every opportunity to cause a dust up, but they didn't. Look at verse 27. When they had brought them, they stood before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you have put to death by hanging him on the cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now this passage has a verse in it that is known to be one of the most abused verses in Christian history. Because we tend to use this verse, we must obey God rather than men to back our selfish desires. So I think it's worth us taking a little bit of time digging into this. It's made popular over these past two years, and I want to make sure that we understand the context of when Peter and the apostles used it. See, what did the Sanhedrin tell them to do? Look at verse 28 again. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name. We told you, as Christians, don't talk about Jesus. Don't have discourse. Don't have interactions. We don't want it on social media. You don't, we don't want you talking about him in the malls. We don't want it in schools. We don't want it on the streets. We don't want you talking to your neighbors. Keep it out of your mouth. Don't talk about Jesus. Quit teaching in his name. Don't do it. Man, that's when Peter said, I'm sorry. We can't do that. Jesus told us, go make disciples, teaching them everything I commanded you. Acts 1.8, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you will be my witnesses. Peter's like, I'm sorry. You're asking me to do the one job. You're asking me not to do the one job I was given. And that's why he said, we need to obey God 
rather than men. Look what he says at the end of verse 32. He says, we are witnesses of these things. And look what he says. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Obey him in what? Let me remind you. Acts 1.8. That's what Jesus said. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall... As a result of the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. Man, this is, it's not about where I put my church. It's about you sharing your life with Christ, you being the witness of God. I love how John Stott, pastor, he said it this way, since the state's authority has been delegated to it by God, we are to submit to it right up to the point where obedience to the state would involve disobedience to God. And that can be a challenge in our day. I'm called to submit. I have the right, I have the power to do something else, but for the Lord's sake, I need to give up my rights, give up my power, for the Lord's sake, but I'm also called to obey God, to understand the hierarchy that I am under him. Man, obedience has this completely different connotation. Submission is, okay, I'm going to choose to do this. Obey is, no, 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 you need to do this. How do you do it? That was a question that the elders and I wrestled with a couple years ago came up with principles. Principles. These aren't rules. These aren't things you get kicked out of church if you don't do. These are principles. When people say, Brian, I, I, I don't know how to do that. There's so many talking heads. There's so many voices. There's so many opinions. There's so many books. Man, I read a book of one guy who said this 20 years later, wrote his, read his new book. He said that. What's the Bible say? So the elders... We came up with five principles. I want to share them with you. It, don't, don't worry about writing them down. If you don't want to, there's copies of this at the information center. You can just pick it up on your way out if you want to interact about it more. Principle one, our enemy is spiritual, not physical. Our citizenship is heavenly, not earthly. Application, both individual Christians and churches, as organization should re remember that this world is not our true home. That real resistance to God comes from the spiritual realm, not from the world's government or institutions. Hey, let's remember what we're about. We're about the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus had to pray for. Let your kingdom come on earth as is in heaven. Man, this is your thing. Sometimes we get so caught up defending our thing. First principle, let's remember. Our enemy is spiritual. Man, what is all of this really about? about God's authority. Principle two, government is created by God and serves his purposes. Man, they're accountable to him. They're established by God. That's what Peter and Paul both teach. Well, Brian, they're not reflecting God right now. Okay, well, they need to answer to him. They answer to him. 
Both individual Christians and churches as organizations should recognize that government derives its existence, purpose, and authority from God himself. Now, you've got to remember that. We don't get to claim sovereignty of God, that he holds everything under his thumb, but then freak out when our guy or gal doesn't get elected. Government's created by God and serves his purpose. Principle three, submit to government, except when it prohibits or requires action in direct contradiction to a command of God. Both individual Christians and churches as organizations must submit to the laws governing them, except when those laws contradict God's commands. Commands. We didn't stop there. I love this second sentence. If a Christian or a church then disobeys the government, they should be willing to accept the consequences. That's what the Bible teaches, right? Hey, don't get persecuted for something stupid. If you get persecuted, make sure it's for righteousness. And if you're being persecuted, if you're being attacked by the world for standing up for the Lord, good job, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised because when the movement of God is working, persecution will come. Principle four. Pray for the salvation of government officials. Christians should pray for government officials. This should be a regular part of both individual and corporate prayer. I mean, how often do we do that? God, these people are under your authority. And whether you like them or not, some of them are bringing condemnation on themselves. And God, open their eyes. So Paul wrote Timothy. Look what he said. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Man, what do I do in the midst of a kooky culture? Pray. Pray that God opens their eyes. That we might have sanity in the midst of our kooky culture. Please. Principle five then. We are free to exercise any civil liberties established by the government, limited only by scripture. Oh, hey, as, as Americans, we have rights, right? Paul, as a Roman citizen, he had rights. And he exercised those rights when it suited the gospel most. And he put aside those rights when it hindered. Application, both individual Christians and churches as organizations may pursue their liberty in Christ by freely enjoying and even insisting upon any rights and privileges accorded to them by the laws of the government to which they are subject. But can I encourage you, can we, can we not just remember principle five? Let's try to follow principles one through five. I believe in this passage, man. You want to be faithful to God in the midst of trial and persecution. Man, don't be surprised when it comes, when the movement of God is working. And I got to tell you, the movement of God is working in California. 
God is moving in California. He's not abandoned us. He has not left us. He is here. He is working. Expect struggles. Expect trials. Remember your purpose. Remember your obedience. Third, remember God's control. We're going to fly through the next half of this passage. Look what happens. You've got to know that the Sanhedrin... They're not going to love Peter's boldness in response. Look what happens. Verse 33, but when they heard this, when the Sanhedrin heard this, they were cut to the quick. That means, man, they were cut to their heart. They intended to kill him. They were going to kill him right there. Big biblical but, though. Verse 34, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Gamaliel, greatest teacher of his era, was considered the gold standard for Pharisees. He was the grandson of a famous rabbi and the mentor of the apostle Paul before his conversion. Man, when things are about to go crazy, Gamaliel steps in. Look what he says. Pharisee named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council, gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. Hey, we got to talk. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care that you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him, he too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. Verse 38, so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But... If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may be, even be found fighting against God. Gamaliel says, hey, listen, movements of man die off. Don't they? Political parties come and go. Politicians come and go. Lakers rise. Lakers fall. Gold State falls. Gold State rises. Movements of men fail. But Gamaliel said, but things of God don't. Things of God don't. His love never fails. His word lives forever. His presence will never leave us. Movements of men fail. Things of God don't. Gamaliel will say, hey, I think we need to sit back. I mean, there's, there's things happening. When the leader dies, things usually end up. They, they just die off. This guy dies and things are heating up. Not just that, there's miracles going on. Can anyone explain that? These people who are getting healed, can anyone explain that? And let's not forget, how'd they get out of jail? And their boldness, there's boldness in these guys we haven't seen since Jesus. Gamaliel's just saying, hey, let's hit pause. Things of men fail, things of God don't. Be careful. You might find yourself fighting against God. Third reminder. Remember your purpose. Remember your obedience. You've got to remember God's in control. And that doesn't mean that things are always going to go your way. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were honoring God. They said, all right, you're going to have to go into the fiery furnace. They said, okay. It's all right. God can save us if he wants to. If not, no biggie. We go see him sooner than we thought. But we're not going to honor you. Doesn't mean everything's going to go your way. It just means God's in control. 
whether it goes your way or not. I want to be able to stand firm, remember your purpose, remember your obedience, remember God's control. Lastly, remember your joy. Look what happens. Verse 40, Sanhedrin took Gamaliel's advice after calling the apostles in. They flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. I got to spend a moment on this because I was reading something and someone said that flogging is like an adult spanking. It's not. Flogging is not anything like an adult spanking. The whips they would use would have pieces of bone and metal on the tips of it designed to inflict maximum damage to rip skin off your back and flesh off your bones. It was so horrendous, the Old Testament gave limits to how many whippings you could give someone. Estimates would take four to six weeks for you to recover from one flogging. And from one flogging, your back would be permanently disfigured. By the way, Paul said he was flogged five times. So I want to make sure these guys flogged. I mean, this was not an adult spanking. I mean, they felt this. Their shirts probably stuck to their back for weeks after this. And look what they did, verse 41. Then on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. We closed our Bibles. We're like, all right, that's it. I'm out. Like, there's no way. Hey, what do they see that we don't? I mean, how can they do that? Man, I'm blowing my mind over $6 gas. <laughs> how do they do that? What do they see that we don't? What do they remember that we can't? Two quick teachings. Let me remind you, Jesus said this, one of his greatest sermons, Sermons on the Mount. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed, happy, content, fulfilled, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. First thing you rejoice in, your endurance of persecution pleases God. Man, how do they do that? How can we do that? What's that about? Number one, remember your joy when you endure a hardship because of your faith in God. Remember your joy. Rejoice. You're pleasing the Lord in the midst of it. One more thing I want you to see. 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing and though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Why else remember? Why else rejoice? Why rejoice when we go through struggles? Remembering what's yet to come. Remembering what's yet to come. Now, how did these guys do it? They were thrilled they got to please God. And they were thrilled in the, in the joy that's yet to come in heaven. I got to remind you, Jesus did the same thing. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It doesn't mean Jesus went skipping to the cross all excited about it. Why did he do it? Why did he submit? For the joy set before him, recognizing what God's going to do in it, man, he was excited about it.
The truth is, oftentimes, the greater the ministry impact you make, it often brings an increase in trials and persecution as a result. If and when that time comes. Four truths to remember. Remember your purpose. Don't get distracted. Remember your purpose is to be a witness. You are empowered for it. Remember your obedience. Pray. Try to stick to those principles so that we might be a reflection of Christ in the midst of a kooky culture. We're not the first people of God in a kooky culture. God has been doing work amidst kooky culture worse than ours for centuries. If he can do that with them, why not us? Number three, remember God's control. Man, even when it feels like he's not. Remember in faith that he is. And fourth, man, let's try to be less grumpy, huh? I mean, I, I, we chuckle. Let's try to be less grumpy about it. We are in the midst of the kingdom of God at work. The Holy Spirit, the breath of God is filling our lives and working in our hearts. Even though struggles come, we know the end. And we know our reward. Eternity with God in peace and contentment. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you as a church, grateful, thankful. God, we're grateful for all the things that you're doing in our midst. God, we're grateful for what you're doing in our homes, with our children, in our community, in our state. God, as much as we complain about it and whine about it and make fun of it, God, we do believe that you're at work. So God, I pray you just continue to equip us, empower us, renew us, enable us to be a reflection of your glory in the midst of our culture. God, remind us of our purpose. Help us to be submissive where we ought to be and empower us to be obedient where we need to be. God, remind us of your sovereign control. And God, remind us to rejoice and celebrate your work each and every day of our lives. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.